This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, former NHL player and coach Ted Nolan and the First People's Rookie Card Series, Black Girl Hockey Scholarship winners, and in conversation with Vaughn Mayor Stephen Del Duca. But we begin with Global Medic's rush to help in the quake zone. Kevin Frankish with that story. The situation in Turkey and Syria worsens hour by hour. There is still so much that has to be done, and it has to be done quickly. Global Medics, as usual, sprang into action the moment the news hit about the earthquake in uh, Turkey and in Syria. Raul Singh, who is the uh, founder of Global Medics, uh, based out of Etobicoke, joins me right now. And uh, Raul, uh, when I say the situation is changing hour by hour, you better than, than most know that firsthand. Yeah, no, it's a pretty dire situation, right? It's cold. There's a ton of aid that's needed. There's tons of folks that are affected. I mean, there's 15 million people in harm's way here. We've got our partners teams, when we worked in there back in 11 in the earthquake in Van, they've deployed now into four regions with medical teams, and now they're starting to distribute some life-sustaining supplies. So we're helping them with that. We're also putting in water purification units that are going to help feeding kitchens. You've got to remember, there's so many people that are going to be living in tent cities now. You've got to feed them. You've got to keep them fed, especially outside the winter or the cold. Those kitchens have to have clean water or they can't work. So one of our teams is out the door tonight carrying portable units to go and install uh, clean water systems in those kitchens to keep people fed. And then we've worked in Syria for the last decade, over a decade in that area, so we're using our pipeline to get more food and more aid into that area. And wow, it's way more devastated and there's just no help coming into it. One of the difficulties, of course, has to be isolation. Uh, I mean, we have the difficulties of isolation plus uh, civil war in Syria, but in Turkey, isolation of some of these villages. Yeah, this is spread out across 10 cities, right? So it's pretty big. If it was just one city affected, it would be a a significant event, right? But to have it in 10 is just uh, catastrophic. Now, the other thing with, with Syria, like if you think on the Turkish side, you can absorb into the rest of the country. Like there's 85 million people in Turkey, 10, 11 million are affected on the Turkish side. People can get out and go stay with families, friends, you know, like there's there's opportunities there. On the Syria side, there's no place to go. Like they don't want to go back to government-controlled areas. They were being killed there. That's why they moved up into this. And in Syria, 9 out of 10 people relied on humanitarian assistance to live 15 seconds before the earthquake. Can you imagine how much worse it is now? For sure. Now, the uh, Canadian government uh, matching dollar for dollar uh, people's donations. However, they are not doing it in a way that is conducive to helping all of the nonprofit charities to raise money. Why? Well, this is a terrible decision by the Canadian government. To match one agency only actually comes at the expense of every other aid agency that's trying to respond. You actually tie one arm behind their back. You know, like So for us as an agency, it actually hurts us. And this is a time where Turkey has called for the world to come in and help, and yet our government comes up with a solution that doesn't allow everyone to help. It only incentivizes Canadians to give to one group. Now, before 2017... They used to match all of us as agents that were responding, all our agencies, but they would give one fund and then give it to the group that they wanted to give it to, but it didn't harm us. It didn't hurt us from responding. But this government, this is a bad decision. They've been doing this since 2017, and its decision will harm people that need our help right now. 
Is there any indication they're hearing you? No, absolutely not. They've moved about $157 million in this direction since 2017. We've written to the minister, been completely ignored. We've asked senators to raise the question on the House floor. They do this in Canada, too. Like in Hurricane Fiona, they only directed uh, donations to one group. They still haven't given the match months later. So this is a very poor decision. They're not listening. And, you know, the tragedy here, it hurts people. Now, we talked before, and you told me there are three ways that people can help out. And then, obviously, now, with with that government action, you're going to need all the help you can get. So what are the three ways people can help out Global Medics? Well, first of all, make a donation. Go to globalmedic.ca, and you can give us a donation. We will convert your donation. We will treat it well. We will be really respectful with it and make sure we get good value for money and make sure we get aid to people that need it right now. Secondly, if you come out and volunteer and help us pack aid, we drive down those costs. We've got supply chains open. We push more aid out. And then third, you know, we don't spend money on marketing and social media amplification. We just don't do that. So if you share with your network our work, you can amplify our impact and help more people. No doubt this disaster is going to stretch your resources to the absolute limits. How do you keep yourself from spreading yourself too thin? Because besides Turkey and Syria, you're in Ukraine. You are in other portions of the world, parts of the world, uh, where help is needed. Yeah, we're active in a number of countries. Uh, obviously, Ukraine is is just this catastrophic event and an ugly war and there are like one in three families in ukraine are hungry so we are stretched there we are working hard but how do we not respond into turkey and syria so we are stretched and we're doing our best to help but then when you get a government decision like this that really makes it that much harder the fourth way canadians can help is call the prime minister today and say stop this stupid policy and call their local mp and remind people of the uh, website where they can donate. Yeah, sure. You can support us, globalmedic.ca. All right, globalmedic.ca. Raul Singh, founder of Global Medic, and uh, incredible work you do. Uh, this is going to take um, a long time. In, in your, in your, you know, in, in your history of, of dealing with disasters such as this, how long do you think it's going to take before we can get to a point where we can say, okay, we've seen the, the worst? Yeah, I think what's going, to happen, what's going to happen with this is this is years away from a decent recovery, right? It's the next, it's the next weeks to months to get as many people out of the region that can be taken out, get them into shelters, get them into different areas, keep them alive, keep them sustained. But then the recovery side of this is going to take years. Like, remember the earthquake in Haiti in 2010? Like, it's still not recovered fully, right? You know, Ecuador had an earthquake a few years back. Like, it takes a long time for this stuff. But the key is to focus on the living, focus on people that need our help, and get them the help they need right now. That's everybody responding, everybody helping. All right. Thank you so much, Raul. I appreciate it. All right, you take care. Raul Singh from Global Medic. And if you go to their website, globalmedic.ca, I'm looking at it right now. There is a red banner, a red bar right across the top that says Global Medic is responding to the Turkey-Syria earthquake. Click here to donate now. And... It is easy, it is quick, and uh, you're going to be uh, definitely uh, putting your money in a very safe and effective spot.
a call to arms from Canadian Blood Services to give a little bit or a lot if you can. Here with really good reasons why you should consider donating is Andrew McCartney, Canadian Blood Services, Toronto, North York, and right here in York Region. Andrew, welcome to the feed. Good to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much, Anne. It's such a a privilege to be here. Every minute of every day, a patient in Canada needs blood. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, well, that's a sad, unfortunate reality that we face here at Canadian Blood Service is that every minute of every day, there's someone in Canada that needs blood. Um, We can look at certain situations where someone with leukemia, which is an aggressive type of blood cancer, could need up to eight units of blood every single week. Other types of cancer as well, um, donors are are needed to help with um, certain types of skin cancer, um, liver cancer, and they could need up to five units of blood. Um, If there is a traumatic um, event, like a car accident, or a construction site incident and and an individual is losing blood, they could need up to 50 units of blood, which is 50 individuals entering our donor centers and donating um, just to save one person's life. So this astonishes me, this particular fact. One in two Canadians is eligible to donate blood, but only one in 81 actually does. What are people afraid of? Why are they reluctant? So this is something that we've really focused um, here at Canadian Blood Services uh, in in previous years and looking forward is really getting um, first time donors involved. Like you said, one in two donors will need, or one in two Canadians will need blood at some point in their life, and only one in eighty one donate on a regular basis. So it is so important that we get new donors, first-time donors, to go out, roll up their sleeves, and help those in our community. It is really so, so easy to do so. Um, Just booking an appointment on our website, blood.ca, or downloading our app, um, we have donation sites all across the York region, including Richmond Hill at our Hillcrest Mall, as well as mobile sites in community centers and churches around York region. What about the safety side of this? And that's from start to finish. That means uh, donating blood, but also receiving blood. How do you make sure that this whole process is safe? Of course. So our number one priority is the safety of our donors. So before you go in and donate, we'll send you a, a long email with how best to prepare for your donation experience. And the main thing being making sure that you're well hydrated and you've had a good meal to eat beforehand. When you arrive... Um, If it's your first time donating, you'll be checked in. And then at that point in time, we're actually going to check your hemoglobin levels, which is just done through a prick of the finger. We're going to test to make sure that your iron levels in uh, your blood are substantial enough to um, sustain. Um, And then after that, you'll be moved along to our donation bed where you can actually make your donation. In terms of safety for um, recipients, um, once the blood is collected, it goes to our facility in Brampton and it goes under it undergoes rigorous testing. Um, and at that point in time, it gets shipped out to the 
hospitals in need. You know, it's interesting in this day and age where we are dealing with inflation and high interest rates and people are struggling financially. It's really tough to give money to charities and to organizations. This is a way to give without having to spend a dime. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, this is one of the reasons that I started donating so long ago. This is just such an easy way that people can um, go help their community, um, help their fellow Canadians in a time where um, that sort of community building is so, so badly needed. Um, I've talked in the past about, you know, when I donate, I almost feel... Um, you know, I feel better walking out of our donation centers than when I walked in because I know yeah. that I've actually helped someone uh, that is going to need uh, our products, whether that be um, a young a young man um, undergoing cancer treatment or um, someone else who has um, gone through some sort of trauma, traumatic event, like a, a car accident or something like that. It's my understanding that donated blood lasts no longer than 42 days, platelets seven days, and plasma lasts about a year. So what does that tell all of us listening right now in terms of the frequency with which you would like to see people donate? So one of the key messages that I would love your listeners to understand is the need, the constant need for blood. So like you had mentioned, our blood products only last for 42 days. Um, so it's something similar to like a carton of milk. So you go buy a carton of milk, you have it in your fridge for a month, you use it throughout the month. Um, and then, you know, after uh, three or four weeks, you're like, I need to replace that. <laughs> so really, no matter how much blood we've collected last month, last week, yesterday, today, we're always having to think about the constant need um, in the future and kind of what our blood inventory level will look like on that 42nd day. So the need for blood is constant, and that's why we always encourage our donors to rebook while you're at your um, donate at your donation center, and it's so easy to do so. Just talk to one of our wonderful staff, and they'll be happy to do so. And Andrew, is there ever a time when there isn't enough blood to give to somebody who desperately needs it in order to stay alive? Well, um, thankfully, we run at Canadian Blood Services as a national blood supplier. So what that means is when we collect blood, um, it goes to our uh, facility in Brampton, and it, your blood may be used and shipped to anywhere as far as Windsor, around Ontario. Uh, it could go to Kingston, Niagara region, right here in York region. Um, there are, of course, instances where we would go into immediate need and where we send elevated messaging. But in the past, we've always experienced um, donors will always come out and rally when we, when we kind of increase our, our messaging and, and ask for, for folks to roll up their sleeves. We always have a great response. Just this past holiday season, actually, we needed to release some increased messaging, and we had a great response. You know, it's interesting you say that, and it's your call to arms, of course, and you're open mm -hmm. on Family Day in this month of, of February, and it might be something that, I don't know what you, if you have age limitations, but it certainly is something that you might think about doing on Family Day, even if you're not eligible to give blood, to be there to support the rest of your family. 
Absolutely. So we're open five days a week at Hillcrest Mall, including all holidays. Um, like I said before, the need for blood is constant. So we very often need to be open, you know, five days a week, including holidays, to make sure that our inventory levels are always at a stable level. So we do encourage everyone listening to um, book an appointment, including family day. Make it a family event. Come with your friends, come with your family, encourage your neighbors, maybe talk, have a conversation with your colleagues and rally really your community to come help um, those in need. You've got a great campaign, uh, the winter campaign. It's called Fill the Seats. It's a radiothon from February 13th to 28th. Can you give us the exciting details? I love radiothons. That's right. So we've had some really great radiothons over the last couple of years. And moving on to next week, we will be taking over a lot of radio stations across the GTA uh, and Ontario. And basically what we're looking to do is fill the seats for the month of February. So from now until the end of February, February 28th, we have 30,000 open appointment slots that need to be filled across Ontario, and that includes right here in York Region. Um, so we have Hill, our Hillcrest Mall in Richmond Hill open five days a week, and they that clinic alone needs 405 appointments filled each and every week. Um, we are open Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday with appointments available as early as 8 a.m. and as late as 7 p.m. So we try and make it as easy as possible for, for donors and new donors um, to book and, and come by and donate. Blood.ca, you can download the Give Blood app or call one 2 donate Andrew McCartney, well done. Thank you so much for giving us this great information, and I hope that this encourages people to roll up their sleeves and give. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Anne. After the break, honoring Indigenous NHLers. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Hockey card collectors can now expand their sets to include Canadian Indigenous NHL players. Jim Lang with your first star. Well, if you're a hockey card collector or a sports card collector, something really, really cool is happening with Upper Deck. They're releasing their series of first people's rookie cards. And among those is someone who spent a long time in the NHL as a player and a coach, a former coach of the year of the NHL. Ted Nolan, a big part of it, joins us on the feed. Ted, how are you? Very, very good, Jim, and thanks for thanks for having me on and bringing light to this uh, this hockey card. I think it's fantastic. I mean, as a sports fan and a collector, I can remember as a kid in the '70s seeing the hockey card for Henry Boucher with the Kansas City Scouts, and I was fascinated by it. and And I think there's a real groundswell of hockey fans across North America fascinated by First Nations people and their connection to the NHL. Uh, yes, you know. You know uh... As you know, I I played uh, played the game, coached the game, and I tried to spread the word of of uh, my ancestry and where I'm from. And, and now it's a good thing for some of the young card collectors to to read the back and say, "This is Ojibwe from the Garden River First Nation. He has two boys playing." So it kind of information is vital. And I think about what it was like in the NHL in the late '70s when you broke in. 
until the 80s before he started coaching. I mean, the league and the world was so different. Uh, I mean, I can't even imagine some of the challenges you faced in the NHL in the late 70s. Uh, I tell you, it was... it, it was kind of kind of sad in some some ways. If you think back, and then you think of maybe your son or your daughter going through what I, what I had to go through, uh, trying to play this game. You know, I, I went to the Manitoba Junior Hockey League when I was 16 years old, uh, you know, playing the playing the first year, and you know, fighting almost every day at the at the at the training camp and getting name called all the time, and going to school and getting the same thing, and all of a sudden you're fighting at the ice, you're fighting at school, and you couldn't uh, do both, so I, I quit going to school. And it was just, I went back later on, but uh, um, I had to quit one or the other. It was, it was extremely hard, and, but um, uh, I just really, thank God I had strong, strong-willed parents that really instilled them in, into me and who I was as a, as a First Nation man and, and to be proud. And, and I think that's how I, I, I overcame a lot and fought through it. And, but uh, just fighting through that just to play a game was, uh, I, I'm hopefully hoping that uh, uh, future generations don't have to come near what, what uh, some of us had to go through in the past. Well said, Ted. And I, and I love how in the modern times, social media sometimes can be a good thing and a, a, a gentleman named Cardinal, a hockey car collector, an indigenous hockey car collector, kind of got the ball rolling on his Instagram to create this series. How did you two connect? Well, you, you know, he, he connected with, with my uh, younger, but my oldest boy, Brandon. Uh, they connected on, online because we, we did uh, we did some uh, work up in his territory. But, you know, it's, and I'm glad you said that, Jim, about, uh, uh, about him. Because you know, there's a young guy that uh, was inspired by older guys like myself that needed to to be recognized. So it's not like us coming down and say, "Hey, we have to get recognized." No, it was a young generation that wanted to bring light to this because uh, we we all know how important uh, represent- representation really is, and for young people to to come forward. To, to wanting to see us on the card was uh, more more inspiring than just getting a card. Yeah, and I'm really applauding Upper Deck for their initiative as well, that they're going to make these cards, the first one of cards free, mostly in Indigenous hockey camps and tournaments. What a great way to spread the message and educate young Indigenous hockey players. Oh, no, no question. And like I said, we, we have this here in Canada called the Little NHL, the Little Native Hockey League that we uh, we participated in when I was a kid. I with the Shows how old I am. I participated in the first one ever. It was in Espanola, Ontario, in 1972, or so. It's, it's 40, 50 years later, and uh, so we'll be giving out the cards at that, that tournament. Plus, we'll be giving them out to uh, uh, various hockey schools that we run. Or we run together with my two boys. We, we call it the Three End, the Three Nolans Hockey Camp. That uh, we'll be able to give these out too. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be uh, exciting and. and What's exciting about it is, uh, you know, pitching yourself when I got my, you know, Jimmy Nielsen card when I was younger and looking at him and going, mm. man, looks like me. Or getting a Stan Jonathan, you know, th- those type of uh, uh, cards, Ronnie DeLorem, Gino Ojek, Chris Simon, all the all the players that uh, have made of ancestry to, to see them, uh, which is inspiration. So we're hoping that the same inspiration could be spread uh, with, with these 
Speaking with Ted Nolan, longtime NHL or former coach of the year of the NHL, and part of this, something really cool, the Upper Decks First People's Rookie Hockey Card Series. And, and Ted, I, I mean, representation in hockey is an important thing. And for no matter what your your ethnic background, to see someone that looks like you, that that has your name, that has your ethnic background, that made it, that that is, is inspiring not just in hockey but in life. No, no, no question. I mean, uh, you, you look for, for people on TV. You look for them in commercials. You look for them uh, in the nursing stations. You look for them at police stations. Yeah, and representation really does matter. So to, to have a, a small part in that through the sports field and to let young kids know no matter where they're from. You know, my, my story goes, uh, my, my upbringing and my boys' upbringing, although we're the same family, was two totally different uh, environments. I, I grew up in a house that lacked uh, electricity and then indoor plumbing. We had an outdoor toilet until I was 17 years old. And my first pair of skates were size 8. I never played really AAA hockey in elite camps. I, I played basically house league hockey. Would, uh, could that happen nowadays? I'm not 100% sure about that because the, the game got so expensive and so technical that uh, if you don't have the specialized training, it, it's very, very difficult. So are they grabbing a photo from you from the late 70s to use for your image for your rookie card, Ted? Uh, they, they, they grabbed the image when I was uh, playing with the Detroit Red Wings. Oh. Uh, Number number eight that I was wearing, but I, I thought I wore number twenty nine the first couple games that I wore. So yeah, it doesn't really matter the, the number, but I did wear number eight. And I got the picture to, to prove it, and uh, I wore number twelve, I believe, uh, with Detroit also. So, but um, you know, number is very insignificant. Uh, uh, what it says. Uh, I was a member of Detroit Red Wings, you know, and thankfully for you know a lot of people don't know this story. You know, Ted Lindsay. I mean, he was one of the the, uh, the leaders of the Players Association, and he was a general manager. When I went to camp when I was uh, 19, 20 years old, I, I was I was intimidated. Jim, mm-hmm. I, I was the guys were too big, too fast. It was just a a whole different uh, whole different world for me. So I I packed up my bags and I, and I went home. And uh, thankfully, Ted called me back and asked me why. And I told him, I said, I felt I couldn't keep up. He said, that's what we do. We train you to, to become better. So he put me down in Kansas City, Central Hockey League, and, and, the, and the rest is history. But now you can prove to your sons, especially Jordan and Nolan, of like who was the better-looking rookie when you have the three rookie cards side by side. Oh, the boys are are good looking boys, and thank God they took after their mom on on that side. So, (laughs) but more importantly, they're they're good boys. So, actually, they're out doing a hockey camp right now up in uh, Great Whale. It's a community at the tip of Quebec, I I believe, and they're up there, and we we do that a a lot. So, for them to 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 give back and talk to the kids about uh, you know about working hard, about education, about substance abuses, about health. You know, those are the the goals of our of our program more so than becoming a better stick handler, a better skater. It's uh, that will come naturally, but uh, the importance of, of of education and health, and uh, you know, especially with mental health nowadays, uh, that's a word we try to help spread through the, our hockey school. Now, Ted Dolan, obviously a lot of people remember you as the coach here at the NHL, but I think you're touching more lives on what you're doing post-hockey. A big part of the Upper Deck First People's Rookie Hockey Card Series. Ted, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, and thank you for you and the Nolan family, all the work that you do in this great country. 
Well, thank you. And actually, I can't wait to run into some of my old former teammates and see if they want to trade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Jimmy Rutherford seems <laughs> to be doing a lot of trading lately, so yeah, he might be up for it. <laughs> <laughs> there, you, there you go. Well, thanks for having me on, Jim, and bringing light to this, this thing because it, it's so important. That, you know, you see some of the guys that played one or two games. To me, it's never never uh, the amount of games that you played. It's it's the fact that you did play. So it's it's uh, it's great that the uh, upper deck is is, is acknowledging uh, um, uh, Indigenous players in this format. So uh, it'll bring a light to, to a lot of people out there that that we do have a, hip, a rich history in this game. Well said, Ted. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, and all the best. Take care. All right, Jim. Take Bye-bye. care. Next, the Black Girl Hockey Club honors young women on and off the ice. The Black Girl Hockey Club announced its Winter 2023 Scholarship Award winners last Friday, and six recipients were awarded $8,000, and one received a four-year $100,000 grant by Bauer Hockey. Joining me with details about this amazing news is Communication Director at the Black Girl Hockey Club, Taylor Green. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, tell us a little bit about the Black Girl Hockey Club and about the scholarship program and how it started. Sure. So Black Girl Hockey Club started in 2018, basically just as a space for Black women to feel more safe going to hockey games and just to embrace our hockey fandom. So it really started off just as a group chat and then it sort of grew on Twitter and has since become a nonprofit dedicated to advocating for the inclusion of Black women and girls across all levels of hockey. So as you mentioned, one of our key programming initiatives is our scholarship program that started in 2020. um, And we've donated over $100,000 to over 60 young women and girls across North America, Kenya, the UK, and France. So we're really excited to continue with this amazing scholarship program and super excited to celebrate these eight amazing young women and be a part of their hockey journey. That is absolutely amazing. And I love how you phrased that in the beginning, like literally from the group chat to real life. I love when we can make those things happen. (laughs) Now, tell us why this is so important, because there are so many reasons. Sure. So uh, research and just anecdotal stories tell us that One of the key barriers from particularly young people of color from enjoying the game, um, especially at an early age, is the financial cost. It's no secret that ice hockey is very expensive, whether it's registering for a team or being outfitted with equipment. And so we wanted to do our best to alleviate that barrier and just let kids be kids and to help support them as well as their families. So we saw the scholarship program as one of the direct ways that we can make their lives a little easier and help them enjoy the game and sustain their passion in it, whether it's playing or in other endeavors throughout the sport. I feel like there is a bit of taboo around Black girls playing hockey. And I had this conversation last week on the feed, actually, with a local broadcaster, Tracy Bohr, and her daughter, Eva Perone. They actually shifted the way that we look at hockey, and they rewrote this book called The Hockey Sweater, which is now called The Hockey Jersey, to make it more diverse and inclusive and see different colored faces playing hockey. So can you tell us a little bit about the importance of that? Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea and that initiative. So shout out to them. Um, I think just making sure that when we say hockey is for everyone, that we mean it 
And so whether it's through um, our actions, our deeds, how we support the causes that we donate, just making sure that we really do make more equitable and welcoming spaces for hockey. I can say personally as a hockey fan, um, even just watching hockey um, along on Twitter or watching in person, it can be a daunting and isolating experience. And so, you know, having 20 plus or 50 plus uh, women of color, particularly black women at a hockey game who have all had that feeling and can all be there to support one another, whether you're young um, in age or at heart, um, is a really affirming experience and it makes this work worthwhile. Yes, so worthwhile. And before we get back to the scholarship, can you tell me a little bit about that? How did it feel for you being a Black girl who was a hockey fan? Because I'm sure there weren't many to find when you were younger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And especially growing up in Florida, although we have two amazing hockey teams, um, it didn't always feel as though hockey was so prominent amongst uh, my friend group. Um, I was just on Twitter one day and I saw this organization called Black Girl Hockey Club, and it was the one thing that I didn't know existed, but was exactly what I needed. So I immediately followed and they followed me back and we've been stuck together ever since. And I think that's the origin story for so many of our supporters and volunteers. Um, So, yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. And I'm so happy that other young women don't have to have that experience, frankly, that they know that there is, you know, a, a wonderful support group of people in their corner. Yes, and this is a perfect example of being the change that you want to see. So I love that. Congratulations to you. And let's get back to the scholarship a little bit. How were the recipients selected? So we have a standard application process. They give us their contact information as well as answer two essay questions demonstrating how this scholarship can help enhance their hockey playing abilities and demonstrate how this scholarship will help with promoting women and people of color and making hockey more inclusive. So we have a scholarship committee that carefully goes over all of the applications. We delineate. It's very tough. I can say from a personal experience, we're all softies. We all want to give everyone, you know, a million dollars and help as many people as possible. So it can be very tough. But at the same time, it's so rewarding to be able to uh, write that letter to that young girl and say, hey, you know, you just won, you know, X amount of dollars and we'd love to meet you and your family. And it's not just about the scholarship, but it's, you know, all the days and events after. So we love to stay in touch with them. We love to hear about them, you know, signing with the school or continuing with their hockey journey or even just scoring a goal or even them deciding, hey, I don't want to play anymore, but I want to work in hockey operations. I want to work in business operations. So however we can help facilitate that and be a part of their hockey journey, we're happy to do so. That's amazing. And this is Black History Month, and we definitely want to amplify Black voices and share stories like this, but not just now. We want to share them all year round. And this is a scholarship program that you've got running all year round. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We are currently accepting applications for our summer scholarship. The deadline to apply is April 30th. So if you or anyone you know knows a very deserving young Black girl who could use this money and 
could benefit from this scholarship, please have them apply. Check out our website, blackgirlhockeyclub.org. And thank you for saying that because we can celebrate Black history every month and all the months after. So feel free to, to donate to Black Girl Hockey Club and support our initiatives, including our scholarship program. Taylor Green, thank you so much for joining me. And you mentioned the website off just now, but where else can we go to find some more information on the Black Girl Hockey Club? Absolutely. You can follow us on social media. We're at Black Girl Hockey on Twitter and we are at Black Girl Hockey Club on Instagram. So follow us. Once again, Taylor Green, the Black Girl Hockey Club Communications Director. Thank you so much and congratulations to all of the recipients of the Winter Scholarship. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, Vaughn Mayor Stephen Del Duca talks taxes and town halls. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. February may be only 28 days long, but it's still a very busy time for the city of Vaughan. The budget, town halls in every ward, enhanced community safety initiatives, and the celebration of Black History Month. Here to guide us through all that is happening now and in the weeks to come in his fair city is Vaughan Mayor Stephen Del Duca. Welcome, your honor, to the feed. Good to have you. So let's talk budget. Big news that happened last Wednesday night. Yeah, really exciting news uh, through some incredible citizen engagement and also the hard work of staff and council. Uh, we ended up in a really good spot with a, a very, I'll say, modest property tax increase of 2.9% for Vaughn residents. And look, it's never it's never the, the most fun thing to do to talk about tax increases, but given the inflation that we're all dealing with, uh, including the city, given with what we've heard around uh, some dramatic increases potentially in property taxes because of provincial legislation, I think that the city of Vaughan landed in a really good spot, which will mean our tax rates remain amongst the lowest in the province of Ontario. But here's some really good news, and for people in, in Vaughan. Uh, so 13 years ago, the city of Vaughan added a hospital levy to our property tax bills. That was our way of uh, paying for the land that the Cordelucci Vaughan Hospital sits on. That levy was supposed to last for 20 full years. I can confirm that through our budgeting process this year, we're bringing that levy off seven years ahead of schedule. Vaughn residents will no longer pay for the hospital levy because we were able to get that done with internal financing and get it taken off the bills seven years ahead of schedule, which is great news for the people of Vaughn. Yeah, there's going to be music to the ears of many people in Vaughn. This was your first budget as mayor. What was that process like for you? Well, it was, it was fascinating to see, you know, the way that the municipal budget cycle works. They, the, the, the team at the city in the last term of council, they actually start this work um, normally in the spring. So this is work that began before I was elected as mayor and this current council was elected uh, to serve the community. Uh, some really top-notch uh, citizen engagement, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, hearing feedback to committee of the whole sessions that were open to the public to hear deputations from residents who wanted to share their feedback with us some deliberating by council. So I think we've ended up in a good spot. It's a, it's a, a budget that is uh, progressive. It's going to help us continue to deliver exceptional service for our residents. And that's something that's really, really important to me. And looking forward, the 2024 to 2026 financial plan, in your view, how does that look at this stage? 
Well, again, I think there's a lot of very responsible and thoughtful assumptions that we have baked into that plan. Obviously, we need to be nimble enough to respond to any challenges that might arise. Our staff, our finance staff, know that it's really important to me to make sure that we do take into account that people are going through an affordability crunch, so we can't be placing an undue burden on the week-to-week, month-to-month bills of our residents, and we won't. But we also have a responsibility to provide incredible service, which we do, and at the same time grow out our infrastructure, which obviously costs money. So whether it's roads or it's the community centers, libraries, fire halls that we really do rely upon in this community, we have to make sure we strike the the right balance, and I believe that we are. The word inclusion keeps coming to my mind when I think about the things that you are doing as mayor of Vaughan, including the mayor's town halls. That's going to be held throughout this year, 2023, in each ward. That's a pretty novel idea. Is it a new idea, Mayor Del Duca? Well, I think it's, you know, I've lived in the community for just over 30 years now. I don't know that I've seen this take place in in this kind of structured, organized way. I'm a new mayor. I've lived in the community, as I said, a long time, and I did represent part of one of the legislature. But there's a lot of new residents here in the community who don't necessarily know much about me. And I'm a really big believer in in that sort of grassroots, on the ground, making sure people have access to their elected officials. So starting later uh, later this month, February 27th, I'm going to be doing my first town hall out in Thornhill, out in Ward 5 going to be taking place and then we're going to move from east to west through the city so wards five four and so on and so forth and i want to do this each and every year for the for the entire term of council so on a regular basis over and above social media emails phone calls that i actually go out into the community residents can come forward we can talk about any issue that they want to talk about i'll try to answer questions and if i don't have the answers i'm promising that i'll get the answers for our residents I think it's a good way for people to have faith and confidence in their local leadership. And from local to federal, Mayor Del Duca, you sent two letters to the federal government, the first outlining the increase in auto thefts in your city and also the concern for public safety. But the second was supporting sentencing reform to keep dangerous offenders off of Vaughn's streets. Have you had any response? So I've had a response to the uh, to the letter to, that I sent to Minister Marco Mendicino uh, regarding auto theft in the Canadian Border Services Agency. I've actually had a call from uh, Minister Mendicino, someone I've known for quite some time. And in the coming days, I believe he'll be coming to the city of Vaughan to meet with me and other stakeholders to talk about what we can do together to combat this issue. It's a it's a problem, a serious problem in Vaughan. But frankly, Anne, it's it's happening across York Region, across Peel, across Toronto. In fact, I think Peel's numbers eclipse what we're seeing in New York region. So it's a very sophisticated ring of, uh, of, of criminals who are engaging in property theft, be it home break-ins or, or auto, uh, auto theft. And, and what we understand with the cars and the trucks that are being stolen is that many of them are ending up overseas where they're being resold. And that means they're obviously being exported from Canada, which is right at the heart of the letter I sent to the minister I think it's time for us to talk about how the Canadian Border Services Agency deals with inspecting or screening exports leaving the country because it just it, it makes no sense to me that it should be that easy to get stolen cars from Vaughan or elsewhere onto a container within a day or two and shipped overseas uh, by these criminals. There's got to be a way to choke off that supply, and I think we can do it if we work together. And speaking of working together, you are holding public meetings to uh, allow the community to learn about what's being done, but also you're bringing in YRP, York Regional Police, one of the best forces in the country. 
absolutely one of the best forces and services that I have, police services in the country. Delighted to work closely with uh, Chief McSween and the rest of the team. This was uh, something that was initiated by our Deputy Mayor Linda Jackson. She had a member's resolution passed back late last year to do five uh, town halls across the city. She's going to start on the West End or the Northwest End in Kleinberg on the 23rd of February. And then those meetings will, will make their way going west to east. So my town halls will go east to west and the community safety town halls will go west to east. And I think that's a good way to make sure we're covering the entire city. I intend to be at each of the community safety town halls as well. And you're 100% right, YRP will be there to share information, to hear from the community. I think it's really important, again, for us as local leaders to be responsive, to be out there, and to make sure people know that we're on their side. Mayor Del Duca, you and I are speaking smack dab in the middle of the weekend, uh, the 11th and 12th of February, where Vaughn is recognizing in a big way Black History Month with amazing events all through the weekend. Jean Augustine, a keynote speaker, one of our favorite people here at 105.9 The Region. Let's now look to February 13th and forward. So starting on Monday, you've got some really interesting ways of celebrating uh, Black History Month, and a lot of it has to do with Vaughan Public Libraries. It does, absolutely. So first of all, I've known, let me just say really quickly about Jean, someone I've known for many, many years. She's a dear friend. Oh, she's the greatest. Uh, and I'm so, <laughs> yeah, and I'm so excited that she's going to be with us for two separate events that we're going to have uh, in the city, of course, the one at City Hall on uh, on Sunday. And then, uh, as you mentioned, starting on Monday, February 13th, the Vaughan Public Libraries, by the way, the award-winning Vaughn Public Libraries, they just recently won four major public library awards. Really proud of the team at uh, Vaughn Public Libraries. They're going to be doing an event uh, starting uh, on Monday, February the 13th. It's, uh, it's a virtual event. It's called Black Excellence in STEM Careers, Diversity and Engineering. That's going to be really exciting. And the list goes on from there. I mentioned Jean just a moment ago on February 22nd. Uh, over at um, what's known as the City Playhouse Theater, we're going to be screening or airing uh, the uh, the auto the autobiographical uh, film about the life and the uh, the exploits, as she said to me, of the Honorable Jean Augustine. So that's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I've heard some really remarkable things about that film. I haven't seen it yet myself, so I'm looking forward to that. Going back to Vaughn Public Libraries, we're going to be doing stuff for kids uh, at the. Um, the Dufferin Clark Library out at uh, in the Dufferin and Clark area. That's exciting on the 22nd as well. And the list goes on from there. All of this can be found at Vaughn.ca, but it really is a very across-the-board effort by the city staff, uh, by myself and members of council, by our good friend Jean Augustine, and of course Vaughn Public Libraries to make sure that we are marking this month uh, in the way that it needs to be marked and celebrated, and I'm really looking forward to it. Mayor Stephen Del Duca, February is the month of love. What is Valentine's <laughs> Day? Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. What do you say right now to the citizens of Vaughan? <laughs> well, I do love this community. Can I just say, Anne, it's not only the month of love because of Valentine's Day, it's also the month in which my wife's birthday occurs. Oh, so this is uh, So she'll be celebrating her birthday a little bit nearer the end of the month. I'm not going to disclose the date, and I'm certainly not going to disclose her age. Either. No, not if you want to be okay, let, I'll, I'll, let back in the house. I'll say it on air. She's uh, Exactly. I won't say it on air, but we're looking forward to celebrating <laughs> Valentine's Day and celebrating her birthday. And again, I love this community, lived here a long time, so proud to serve as mayor and looking forward to doing my very best to deliver some really exceptional progress for the people of Vaughan. We've been in conversation with Vaughan Mayor Stephen Del Duca. Thank you, Your Honor. We will talk again next month.
My pleasure. Thank you. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.